Well, I think we'll pick up where we left off yesterday, although I want to do a little bit of a flashback here. We went through the first two chapters of the Song of Songs, and there is a delicate bit of maneuvering going on in this book but with the relationship between Christ and his church. <clears throat> you will notice as we go through that he is very steady throughout. He is very complimentary. He is very intimate. He is very close with his bride. And she, however, has her ups and downs. She has some dreams. She has what might even be called a nightmare. Uh, she shows somewhat of a selfish approach at times, but it improves as we go on through the book. And the first two chapters seem to be more of an introduction <coughs> where she approaches him a little bit coy, coyly, perhaps in one sense, and perhaps in a little bit of an insecure sense in another. And I think we can look back upon our relationship with God and Christ and his word and his church uh, and say that we were a little bit insecure at times and sometimes we've been very insecure and right now the whole church is pretty insecure. So we have to ask the question as she did in the beginning, am I okay? Will I measure up? Uh, can I really be your bride? <clears throat> am I really the one you want? And then she has to ask, where will you be? I, I don't know you well enough to know for sure just where you're going to be. And then he responded, of course, as we said, uh, I'll be with the flock. I'll be with the sheep. I will be with my people. <coughs> Excuse me. I have a little bit of a chronic problem with that. Sometimes it's worse than others. And then he reassures her at the during chapter 2, that yes, you're okay, and uh, you'll be all right. And then she compliments him some more, and then it talks about arise and come away with me, and the place that they go. Uh, then it kind of goes back. Well, the, we close with verse 17, till the day break, you know, the, the, the light appears. We know the way. We know where we're going, and so on. Uh, be like a young heart or a deer upon the mountains of division, uh, be uh, separating, be putting back together whatever is necessary there. <clears throat> I don't know that I have all the book of Song of Songs figured out as yet, for sure, because there's a lot of imagery here that may become clearer as we go. I think that probably the story told here is very, very much, if not exactly, how it will happen with the church at the end, and her relationship with her groom. God is able to write these things ahead of time and make them happen that way. And we can see ourselves in the church through here. Now in chapter 3, we have what the commentators call the first dream. It's like the setting was there, the security given by Christ, and that he's going to take her away. But it hasn't yet occurred, because there are still some insecurities and some problems that have to be worked out, in the ensuing chapters. Uh, so she had a dream. By night on my bed, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but I found him not. <clears throat> and that's pretty, pretty well the way the church has been of late. 
uh, her dream, or her, I think you could almost call it a nightmare here, if you were about to be married and, and, and you were in love and you had a dream that you couldn't find your groom or that he wouldn't show up at the church on time, uh, this could be a problem to you. It would be a very unsettling, frustrating dream. And it's almost the kind of dream and nightmare the church has been in lately. <clears throat> I don't know how much the church truly is seeking Christ, at least wanting to know exactly what he wants of her at this time, because the church seems to be going a lot of different directions. So I can see how we would fit into this imagery quite well. I will rise now. I'll begin to wake up. She got herself up. She began to look around. I'll go about the city and the streets, and in the broad ways I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but I found him not. And there are many people and many organizations, I think, in the church today who are sort of waking up and looking around and wondering and perhaps wandering about seeking, and I think that fits very well with the famine that Christ said he would send upon the church there in Amos and various other places. They're looking for bread, looking for food, and having mixed success in finding it. The watchmen that go about the city found me, to whom I said, Saw ye him whom my soul loves? And uh, we go and wander, I suppose, from group to group, group asking various watchmen or, or ministers or groups, uh, Have you seen Christ? Do you have a vision of my groom? Where is he? And in some cases they're disappointed. And then they move to another organization or group. Have you seen he whom I love? And they say, well, yeah, we have his name. <laughs> We're trying to do what's right. But it's elusive. It's difficult. I was but a <clears throat> it was but a little that I passed from them. So we wander about and we pass away from those various watchmen. But I found him whom my soul loves. So you see there's some encouragement and strength here and that we, we cast about looking, but eventually we find him. I held him and would not let him go. Sounds like uh, Jacob. He got hold of Christ and he would not turn loose. He seized onto him. He held on, hung on. Until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her that conceived me. I'm taking, I'm hanging on and I'm taking him right back to Mama's house and I'm putting him in Mama's four-poster bed type of a thing. He's not getting away from me. This is a very intimate look between Christ and his bride. I charge you, O you daughters of Jerusalem. Now the daughters of Jerusalem, daughters, plural, all these churches we have today. Not just one daughter at this point, but there are lots of daughters. By the rose and by the hinds of the field, that you stir not up, nor awake my love, till he please. And we rehearsed that yesterday in Zechariah 2 and other places, where he says, he will rise and go to work. <clears throat> Who is this that comes out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke? perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all powders of the merchant. If this isn't a, uh, an alliteration or a, a, uh, an imagery of Christ here, which it's possible it is, he's prepared. 
he's all bathed and powdered and perfumed and comes smoking out of the wilderness, uh, the, the knight in shining armor, so to speak, that we hear about in fairy tales. This is no fairy tale. This is the way it is and the way it shall be. He is prepared. Behold his bed, which is Solomon's. Threescore valiant men are about it of the valiant of Israel. Threescore is sixty. I have no idea what that number might mean. Uh, perhaps down the road it would become clear. They all hold swords. The word of God is a sword. Does that imagery fit here? I don't know. We'll see. They all hold the word, perhaps, being expert in war. And we have put on the, all, all the, the whole armor of God and become expert in war against Satan, against this world, the armor of Christ. Every man has his sword upon his thigh because of fear in the night. The conditions are going to get rough. King Solomon made himself a chariot of the wood of Lebanon. He made the pillars thereof of silver, the bottom thereof of gold, the covering of it purple, the midst thereof being paved with love for the daughters of Jerusalem. Of course, on a physical level, uh, it was legal then, by the way, for him to have lots of wives. Perhaps he went overboard. Uh, <laughs> but it was legal for him to prepare love for the daughters of Jerusalem. Now, I don't know whether Christ here is represented as a type, or Solomon as a type of Christ or not. Uh, that one I'm still sort of scratching my head on uh, and may have to think about some more. It says, Go forth, O you daughters of Zion, daughters of Zion, daughters of Jerusalem. We know both are types of the church because Hebrews 12, 22 through 23 tell us they are. And behold, King Solomon with the crown wherewith his mother crowned him in the day of his espousals and in the day of the gladness of his heart. Now, is she saying King Solomon did all these things uh, and he had all these daughters of Jerusalem, but she's being a little bit selfish here because it changes in chapter 4 to where um, she and her groom begin to compliment each other and that this is a love between just them. Now, we know that seven women will take hold of one man, so all these daughters of Jerusalem eventually are going to take hold of Christ, even though they may, not, they may know of him, they may be involved with him to some degree, and they may see what happens with the daughter of Zion, or the virgin daughter of Zion, it's put in several places, where God begins to work with one, and then he draws people out of those others to be a part of that one. So seven take hold of one, and in that sense become one. <clears throat> I don't know exactly what this imagery means. But it might be that Christ uh, is represented here by Solomon, who has something to do with all the daughters, and she says come to them. But it is going to get down to a one-on-one -on -one basis here before this is over. Behold, chapter 4, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes within your locks. Your hair is as a flock of goats that appear from Mount Gilead. I don't know that you would necessarily think of that as a compliment, goat-haired. Uh, but if you've seen a flock of white goats coming down a mountainside from a distance, it's just like a flowing, beautiful white uh, vision out there uh, it's not like you get up close and see the burrs and the dirt and the hair. <laughs> uh, what he's describing here is something that would have been beautiful as they came down the mountain. 
Your teeth are like a flock of sheep that are even shorn, which came up from the washing, white and even and beautiful, and they don't have tufts of, tufts of wool sticking up all over, but have just been shorn and, and are white. Uh, they do have whitening processes now where we could go do this. Uh, I grew up on West Texas water, and I have these yellow fangs, but uh, I haven't gone in and whitened them. I think it costs six or eight hundred dollars, and and I drink that water, and they're brown, and and I'll just hide and smile like this. But how intimate this! Describing one another. Your lips are like a thread of scarlet, your speech is comely, your temples are like a piece of pomegranate within your locks, your neck is like the Tower of David, builded for an armory, whereupon there hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. Uh, this takes quite an imagination to, to look at one another as human beings and, and use this kind of imagery, but these were powerful symbols in the kingdom of David and of Solomon at that time. The Tower of David standing there above Jerusalem, and, and all of these things that they could see and look at as symbols of greatness, wonders of the tribe of Israel. Thy two breasts are like two young rows that are twins, which feed among the lilies. Uh, until the day break and the shadows flee away, I will get me to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. In other words, I can't keep my hands off you. You are all fair, my love. There is no spot in you. Remember, he's going to present his bride, as we saw there in, in Ephesians 5, without wrinkle, without spot, but clean and pure. So I think that the imagery here ties very well with Ephesians 5 and that we are making a correct uh, analysis that this is talking about Christ and his church. <clears throat> Come with me from Lebanon, my spouse, with, with me from Lebanon, and look from the top of Amana. Um, that's near Damascus. From the top of Shinir and Hermon, I was just on Mount Hermon in June, drove as close to the top as I could get without getting shot by Lebanese. Uh, from the lion's den, from the mountains of the leopards, these are some of the um, better highlights, let's say, of that, of that nation, of those peoples where they were living. Mount Hermon uh, is used by uh, David to talk about how the... the the waters flowing from Mount Hermon, that's the headwaters of the Jordan River. But they flow down like Aaron's beard. Aaron must have had a big long one. And uh, he said the waters flow from Hermon like Aaron's beard. So these, those were the, the most beautiful areas that were in the, that section of the country. And they looked up to them. We might look to the Rocky Mountains or to Zion or, or to Bryce Canyon or, or Yosemite or Yellowstone uh, in somewhat the same way, except that those had a deeper religious meaning to those people than these places do to us as a rule. But they used the best compliments they could come up with for each other. Notice verse 9. You have ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. You have ravished my heart with one of your eyes, with one chain of your neck. What does the word ravished mean to you? In other words, Christ is saying to his church, to his daughter of Zion here, I can't keep my hands off you. You, you just ravish my heart. I'm filled with desire for you. I started this out yesterday by saying we want to talk about the intimacy of Christ with his church, what he thinks of us. 
How fair is your love, my sister, my spouse! How much better is your love than wine! And the smell of your ointments than all spices! I just can't get enough of breathing in the scent from you. Your lips, my spouse, drop as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under your tongue. And the smell of your garments is like the smell of Lebanon. He just couldn't keep his tongue out from under hers. This is young love. This is people who just cannot stand to be apart. He wants to be with her. He wants to, to smell the scent of her, to taste her lips, to taste her mouth. The eagerness that is there, that's what he feels toward his church. Now we're beginning to feel accepted. Are we beginning to feel wanted? That there's really something here that is important. And what should our response be? I mean, of a, of a young bride, just waiting to smell and taste and hear him, to hear his voice whispering in our ear. He isn't always as the sound of a waterfall, perhaps as one in the distance with his voice rumbling in our ear and telling us how much he loves us. Verse 12, a garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse, a spring shut up, a fountain sealed. In other words, she's all mine. You're all mine, he says. No one else can touch you. No one else can have you. You're sealed up from everyone else. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with pleasant fruits, camphor with spikenard, spikenard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all the chief spices. You're all these spices all combined, put together into one lovely vision of womanhood. A fountain of gardens, a well of living waters, and streams from Lebanon, clear mountain strings sparkling down from the heights toward the Jordan River. Awake, O north wind, and come, you south wind. Blow upon my garden that the spices thereof may flow out. Let's have a little breeze here to blow her scent. I like to stand downwind of her, in other words. Let my beloved come into his garden and eat his pleasant fruits. And he says all these lovely things about her, and she says, Come on in, honey. Eat of my pleasant fruits. We don't want to get this just down to a sexual thing, but I guess that's kind of what he's doing, isn't it? He wants us to think about these things. Maybe some of you have forgotten some of this imagery, having been married 30, 40, 50 years, but cast back when you were young. And uh, maybe love that has matured for 30, 40, 50 years can be even deeper in a lot of respects. This is a lot of things about just marrying his bride and he the groom. So it's young people in that sense who are just getting together and have only been married a short time. But the relationship has to grow through the years. It's just that we need to understand his feelings for us as his bride. I am come into my garden, my sister, my spouse. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my wine with my milk. Eat, O oh friends. So it's, it, it's plural here. Even though it's just Christ and his church, we are many members, and we can all imbibe of this. 
Drink. Yes, drink abundantly, O beloved. And here's her second dream. I sleep, but my heart wakes. It is the voice of my beloved that knocks, saying, Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled. Sweetheart, I'm here. Listen, wake up. My head is filled with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I have put off my coat. How shall I put it on? She answers. I have washed my feet. How shall I defile them? I've, I've wiped my feet, cleaned them all up. I got into bed, took my clothes off, and I don't want to get up. I might get chilled and I might get my feet dirty. They didn't have uh, a washer downstairs when this was written, so they could just drop their socks and their undies in the, in the machine every day. They had to be very careful to try to stay clean because washing was a big project. And she had those thoughts in mind. This turns into a nightmare right here. So she has her dream. She can't find him. She looks for him, and she thinks she finds him. And then she has another dream. And isn't the church going through this sort of false starts? We, we seem to get hold of Christ, and then he seems to slip away from us. And then he tells us in Isaiah 50, 51, 52, three times, wake up, wake up, wake up. We've quoted that already in this feast. And that's exactly what's happening right here. He says, I've come to you. Where are you? And she starts making excuses about why she can't perform, why she can't get up, why she can't be eager to see him. Uh, you know, I have things to do in my life. I have a job, I have this, I have that, and I certainly deserve a break today, and, uh, you know, I, whatever we might come up with to keep us away from what Christ wants done. Not responding the way a young bride should. Verse 4, my beloved put his hand in the, uh, by the hole of the door, the latch, and my bowels were moved for him. I began to, to come awake a little bit, and, and my emotions began to well up in me. Oh, that is my beloved out there. You know how it is when you're waking up? At first it's, oh, leave me alone, don't bother me, I'm sleeping. And then you get to thinking about it and say, hmm, maybe. So she rose to open to my beloved, and my hands dropped with myrrh, and my fingers with sweet-smelling myrrh upon the handles of the lock. In other words, I had prepared myself to some degree, but then I just couldn't wake up in time. I, I couldn't come alive. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had withdrawn himself and was gone. Now, we've already quoted how Christ says that he has turned his face from the church for but a moment there in Isaiah 54 and other places, and how... He was frustrated and disappointed with her. So he had gone. My soul failed when he spoke. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. That hearkens to me to Amos 8 and then verse 11, where it says, you went from city to city trying to find food, and you found some, but then a total famine or you couldn't find any at all, comes upon the land. They go from coast to coast and not be able to find any. The watchmen that went about the city found me. They smote me. They wounded me. 
The keepers of the walls took away my veil from me. In other words, they began to persecute me. They began to put me down. Matthew 24 says that there will be those who are even killed, martyred, because somehow we had hold of Christ as a church and we let him slip away. And he said, wake up, and we didn't really wake up. And it seems many, many people right now moved over out of Worldwide and the nightmare that we had there, and they moved into other organizations, and then they sat down and got comfortable and going right back to sleep. So we have a second dream here. And this one turns into a real nightmare of persecution, perhaps even martyrdom, as other scriptures indicate, though the church will not all be killed, so it doesn't say that they killed her, but they certainly whipped up on her. They beat her. They took away the veil. Her security behind that veil and being wanting to lift it for her husband was taken away. Exposed to this world. Exposed to what is out there. Persecuted by it. Verse 8, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, you churches, if you find my beloved, that you tell him that I am lovesick. She begins to repent here. I really desire him. I'm after him. Do any of you daughters know where he is? She says. And they say to her, What is your beloved more than any other beloved? O you fairest among women. So we're talking here about the chosen group, chosen organization, however it comes out, the virgin daughter of Zion. He talks about the daughters of Zion, the daughters of Jerusalem, early in some of the prophecies, but then he begins to narrow it down to a daughter who will receive the first dominion, as we'll see a little later in Micah 4, if I don't forget to turn there. And then the other daughters begin to come to her, whoever and wherever she is. So they say to her, what do you have that's so special? What have you got that's any better than what we have? See, here's the jealousy among daughters. My beloved is white and ruddy, the cheapest among 10,000. She begins to describe her, bro- her groom, Jesus Christ. His head is as the most fine gold. She says, you want to know who I worship? You want to know who I love? Here's the one. He's the chief among 10,000. His head is as the most fine gold. His locks are bushy and black as a raven. His eyes are as the eyes of doves by the rivers of waters, washed with milk and fitly set. You ever talk to a young girl about the guy that she's interested in? Boy, she will just sing his praises, won't she? I mean, in some cases, he may just be a little pimple-faced 16-year-old, but she can't see those things about him. I mean, she, she can only see that he's glorious. Well, in this particular case, he is glorious. The most glorious thing, apart from his father, that has ever existed anywhere. And he is, who, with, he is whom, with whom we have to do, I think is the way Paul put it. His cheeks are as a bed of spices as sweet flowers, his lips like lilies, dropping sweet-smelling myrrh. 
His hands are as gold rings set with the barrel. His belly is as bright ivory overlaid with sapphires. His legs are as pillars of marble. My wife tells me um, more like a chunk of marble, but... We probably would just better move on here. <laughs> None of us are Christ yet, are we? <laughs> we all have great lacks. His countenance is as Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. His mouth, or his word, is most sweet. Yes, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. I had over the years thought of Christ as my master, and I was down here trying to be a servant, and it had been pointed out in a sermon at some point that uh, that only a few were ever called a servant of God, and I was just trying to be a servant. But there in the New Testament, where is it? Around John 15, 16, 17, where he says, I have called you friends. That's in that Passover section we read, I believe. And you've got the same imagery here, even in the Old Testament. This was a prophecy for the future, the time when he would invite us not to be servants only, but friends. And we've got that invitation there in John. He's my beloved, he's my husband, he's also my friend. And we need to come to look upon the Father and the Son in many, many different ways, but one of the ways we need to see them as friend. And we can learn more about that by being friends with each other uh, as various parts of the bride. Okay, chapter 6. Where is your beloved gone? Oh, you fairest among women. She is the fairest one. Let's turn back to Proverbs 31 just for a moment there and see that uh, how that is narrowed down. Proverbs 31. We've all read about the virtuous woman, but I, I think that the imagery there not only goes beyond just us trying to be good wives if we're women, but it uh, also refers to Christ and his bride. Verse 10, Who can find a virtuous woman? For her price is far above rubies. The heart of her husband does safely trust in her, so that he shall have no need of spoil. She's not going to be an embarrassment to him. She's not going to despise and misuse those things, those gifts which he gives her. She has the character to handle everything properly. So Christ looks upon his church, and he expects us to handle everything we are given to his glory and to his benefit. Uh, she will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. She will not be an embarrassment to him. She seeks wool and flax and works willingly with her hands, presents herself as a living sacrifice, serving each other and others, always willing to work and do. She is like the merchant ship. She brings her food from afar. She's willing to go out and, and do that, find that which is the very best. She's willing to work at finding good food. She rises also while it is yet night and gives meat to her household and a portion to her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. So she's working at producing and, and, and bringing forth fruits at all times. 
She gets up early while it's yet night, before dawn. Uh, it does says she her candle goes out not at night a little later on here. Uh, in other words, she is very diligently at work. That doesn't mean that she never sleeps. Don't get me wrong. Uh, let's say on a physical level, but it is the uh, it is the imagery here of of working hard, of being willing to work day and night to do whatever is necessary to fulfill her purpose. Verse uh, 17, she girds her loins with strength and strengthens her arms. Remember about Hebrews 12, about strengthening the, the weak arms and the feeble knees and so on. She's busy making herself strong and firm and able to perform the duties that she has been given. She perceives that her merchandise is good. Her candle goes not out by night. She knows what she is set to do and is accomplishing as her function is a good thing. She doesn't bemoan and put herself down, but she knows that she's doing good. And that we can check ourselves according to Scripture to see if we're doing good and then accept the fact that we're doing good if we are. Be encouraged by it. Don't become spiritually proud, of course, because that wouldn't enter her mind if she has the right attitude. But do recognize when we are producing that which is right. I think I can look at this little group here and say that I see good here. I mean, we've only basically known each other now for, what, five days, six days, uh, since we even started getting acquainted. But I've, I've heard nothing but good. Everybody is friendly and warm and trying to get acquainted and, and we're producing, I think, the fruits of, of unity and closeness and brotherhood and sisterhood here in a marvelous way. It was predicted that we wouldn't do this. But I think there's a bunch of serious people here who are producing good. Don't get spiritually proud about it. We can't. But on the other hand, we can look at what we've done and say, that's good, let's do some more of that. Let's produce what we're expected to produce and recognize it as such. She lays her hand to the spindle and her hands hold the distaff. Uh, sewing, well, that means building something, making something, uh, providing cloth, clothing. And we're supposed to be putting on the garments of righteousness, the right clothing, Isaiah 52.1. She stretches out her hand to the poor. Yes, she reaches forth her hands to the needy. We need to be preparing ourselves and doing good work and producing the right kind of fruits, and we need to stretch out our hands to others who are also looking for that which is good, that which has substance, that which is proper and right. And some of you are doing that. You're, you're a bunch of tapeworms. <laughs> Handing tapes out wherever you can to those who might be needy or poor or in need who might themselves be looking for something and, and are having trouble finding during this time of spiritual famine. And it's certainly not wrong for sheep to say, hey, the grass is pretty good over here, come on over. We're not to overtly proselyte, I don't think, as an organization, but for you uh, to share, that's a different thing altogether than the ministry going out and trying to, to herd up a flock, you know. So we can do these things. We can stretch out and help those who might be searching and looking. You have to be careful and not cast pearls before swine in one sense or appear to be 
thinking, you know, we're over-righteous or holier than thou, uh, but at the same time, we can empathize with others who are seeking as we've been seeking and hope that we found good food. Uh, help them. Maybe it'll help fatten them up spiritually in the right way. Verse 21, she is not afraid of the snow for her household, for all her household are clothed with scarlet. Uh, she's taking care of the needs. She looks ahead of time to see what is coming down the road, like winter time, like trouble, like persecution, like martyrdom. We look ahead and see those things, and we get ourselves as prepared and ready as we possibly can. See how this fits with that dream back there about the watchman smiting her as she's looking for Christ? It all fits together very well and I think is very prophetic. Verse 22, she makes herself coverings of tapestry. Her clothing is silk and purple. She chooses royal colors and fine garments. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. So the imagery here, in a prophetic sense, would be of Christ uh, dealing with the elders of the land, and uh, he is not ashamed to be attached to her, and she is supporting him in such a way and setting such a fine example that the other churches could look at her, the other daughters, and say, boy, her husband is the right one. When she described him back there to us, uh, that was Christ she was describing. She's found the right guy. She makes fine linen and sells it and delivers girdles to the merchant. Strength and honor are her clothing, and she shall rejoice in time to come. So down the road, she's going to be rejoicing. Strength and honor. We are honorable because we obey God. We are honorable because we keep his commandments and follow every word which he teaches. That makes us honorable. And it gives us spiritual strength and power. We heard about that in the special music. The power of the name of the Lord. As we obey, we will gain confidence. We will gain faith. We will gain hope and trust in our groom. And it will give us power. And we want that power. He says his spirit gives us the spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. So strength and honor and power will come to her in time to come. We may be not very strong right now. But brethren, I believe we're heading the right direction. People are asking for anointing that haven't been anointed in a while. People are beginning to try to seek to trust and believe in ways that perhaps they haven't believed in a long time because we are beginning to see Christ as alive and true and that some of these things we're reading about right here really are so and that he is there and available for those of us who will seize upon him and accomplish that which he has desired of us. She opens her mouth with wisdom Wisdom does not come easily. It takes a lot of prayer, a lot of study, a lot of meditation to learn how to deal with situations and people. And every word of God is the key to that. Knowing how he thinks, how he reacts. Coming to know him in an intimate way so that we can read his mind and we will react as he would react to whatever the situation might be. Are we still insecure and defensive and lash out at those who might persecute us or put us down? 
or do we accept it calmly and go on about the business that we have to do? That's what he did. He answered not a word, neither opened his mouth when they did all those things to him. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and in her tongue is the law of kindness. She looks well to the ways of her household and eats not the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Look at the high praise given in the Song of Songs. Many daughters have done virtuously. There are a lot of churches. There are a lot of groups. There are a lot of organizations. And many of, many of them have done well. But you excel them all. That's the one I want to be in. The one that excels them all. And I think we'll be there if we do our part. We will excel them all. But we have to do these things he's talking about here. And if we do, we can be a part of that bride. Favor is deceitful. Beauty is vain. Remember there in Isaiah 3, isn't it? 2 or 3? Three? 3, I think where it talks about the daughters who dress themselves up and put on their high heels and go tinkling down the halls uh, and uh, show off as much of their body as they possibly can and not be arrested, uh, trying to be, appear to be the brightest and prettiest of all, comparing themselves among themselves that it just simply is not wise. But they dress themselves all up, and Christ said he's going to turn that away and they will be destroyed. And Isaiah 5 carries on that theme about all these churches, great and fair, that will be torn down. Because he's going to select one daughter that excels them all, and as those are torn down, you have to gather the wood together and start building the temple. There's a mixing of metaphors, but God goes back and forth with these things. And there are several metaphors right there in Isaiah 5, different into the vineyard and the houses and the various things that he uses to describe his church. Here we're talking about a bride. So favor is deceitful and beauty is vain. We can dress ourselves up and try to appear righteous, but it doesn't do a bit of good if it's vain, if it isn't us. If we haven't become righteous, it doesn't do any good to say we're righteous. Because Christ can see through all that. He gets down to the inner beauty. But a woman that fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands, and let her own works praise her in the gates. And that's just what he does to her back here in the Song of Songs. Now let's go on back there. I have no idea where I was. Were we at about chapter 7? No, we're not down that far yet. I'm glad you know what I'm doing. <laughs> You're taking notes and I don't have any here and I got sidetracked. And, and uh, Beginning of 6. Okay, because it's talking about daughters, and I went off on the plurality of that. Okay. All right. Where is your beloved gone, O you fairest among women? Where is your beloved turned aside that we may seek him with you? See? They begin to say, you know, you've got something special there. What is it? Where is he? What's going on there? 
My beloved has gone down into his garden to the beds of spices to feed in the gardens and to gather lilies. Uh, I got him right here in my arms, sweethearts. <laughs> I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He feeds among the lilies. Well-pleasing. You are beautiful, O my love, as Tirza. That Tirza means well-pleasing. Comely as Jerusalem, terrible as an army with banners. Turn away your eyes from me, for they have overcome me. I'm swooning. I just can't stand this anymore. You're gazing into my eyes. I'm melting inside. Your hair is as a flock of goats that appear from Gilead. Your teeth are as a flock of sheep, which you go up from the washing, wherever everyone bears twins. Not only is it there, it's a double vision of twins, and there's not one barren among them. As a piece of a pomegranate are your temples within your locks. There are threescore queens and fourscore concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my undefiled, is but one, Christ says. She is the only one of her mother. Now, our mother, Worldwide Church of God, produced a lot of daughters, a lot of women. But I think it becomes clear here, he's going to select just one. She is the choice one of her that bear her. The daughters saw her and blessed her. Now there's some jealousies, as we saw there in Isaiah 3 and as we saw above here, but the daughters are going to recognize her and bless her. Yes, the queens and the concubines, and they praised her. The queens, those who were duly married, uh, saw her, and the concubines, those that might have been without and aren't really, really aren't wives, but they praise her. Who is she that looks forth as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners? That's the way Christ describes his one chosen one. I went down into the garden of nuts to see the fruits of the valley and to see whether the vine flourished and the pomegranates budded. So they became very intimate with each other and their bodies. Or ever I was aware, my soul, made me like the chariots of Aminadab. That doesn't mean much to you. You don't know what Aminadab is. But uh, in the margin it says, set me on the chariots of my willing people. He's looking for a willing, ready-minded people to be set upon. Return, return, O Shulamite. Return, return, that we may look upon you. What do we pray? Thy kingdom come. Christ return, please. What will you see in the Shulamite? As it were the company of two armies. How is he coming? With a great army? His saints with him? He's coming with his vesture dipped in blood? Description of how Christ will be when he returns. So we ask, and he comes. And what does he say? How beautiful are your feet with shoes, O prince's daughter. She's up out of bed. She's awake. She has her shoes on. She was barefooted before, didn't want to get her little footsies dirty. She's grown. She's not selfish lying in bed all warm and comfy anymore. She has come through that and put away her sleep and her sleepiness and put her shoes on. And now he says, your joints or the joints of your thighs are like jewels, the work of the hands of a cunning workman. Your navel is like a round goblet which wants not liquor. 
like he pours brandy in her navel and licks it out. We probably shouldn't go too far with this. Uh, might not even have a meeting this afternoon. <laughs> if you kind of try to leave it like Christ writes it. <laughs> but this is pretty intimate, isn't it? That's the way he thinks of us. His exact feelings, his emotions toward his church. And don't you think it's hard for him to see her in such a deplorable state today that he can't even stand to look at her? But when she gets up and washes herself off, puts her clean clothes on, puts her shoes on her pretty little feet, and prepares herself to meet her husband, then he says, I can't wait to get my hands on you. He turns his face back to her, and now his eyes are aglow with desire for his bride. That's what we're supposed to understand about our relationship with the church, with Christ. That's what Paul said. This is a deep mystery. But I'm talking of Christ and his church. He keeps describing her. Let's see. We got past the brandy in the navel. Your belly is like a heap of wheat set about with lilies. Your two breasts are like two young rows that are twins. Your neck is a, like a tower of ivory. Your eyes like the fish pools in Heshbon. I'm that those waters were clear. By the gate of bath your nose is as the Tower of Lebanon, which looks toward Damascus. I don't know how you'd describe this, which you haven't seen those places, most of you, and a lot of them are a lot more deserty now than they were then. But, uh, you know, your nose is like the West Temple of Zion out here, <laughs> uh, if you look up. It's majestic, beautiful. I don't know whether she has a big nose or not, but... Uh, <laughs> whatever shape it is, he likes it. I guess that's all that really matters, isn't it? He likes it. Verse 5, your head upon you is like Carmel. Mount Carmel is a, is a beautiful mountain. It's, uh, the, the rock is pretty much white. So maybe she ages quickly here, I don't know. The hair of your head like purple. Well, no, she doesn't have white hair. she got purple hair, I guess. Probably, if you look that up, it isn't purple quite the same way we know purple, I, I would suspect. I've seen hair so black it appeared purple, though. The king is held in the galleries. Uh, in other words, this is a royal setting, is what he's trying to say. You are my royal queen. And there are royal colors involved here. How fair and how pleasant are you, O oh, love for delights. Mm -hmm. um, this, your stature, is like to a palm tree. You stand up straight, your posture's right, I've healed your legs and your hips, and uh, you can stand up straight now. Both physically, uh, as we saw yesterday in Isaiah 35, how the, the lame will walk, the deaf will hear, and the, the blind will see, and so on. And uh, the lame man will leap like a heart. He's going to heal us physically. We're not going to a place of safety and, and have uh, DuPont there. We're going to be healed. You're not going to depend upon potions and pills and, and knives. That isn't the way he's going to take care of his bride. He's going to come marry her. He wants her healthy and well. 
So I think that is going to be both a physical healing and it is going to be a spiritual healing. The spiritual healing is far more important than the physical. I can put up with a crick in my back, but it's awfully hard to put up with these cricks in my head. I need to be spiritually healed. The physical will follow, and maybe we'll see some physical healing as well. But that isn't my goal, because I'm going to die anyway. So what if I feel real good and then fall over? But I want spiritually healed to live forever and to be in spiritual health. And he will also bless us with physical health as time goes on. I feel absolutely sure of that. So she can stand up straight like a palm tree, and your breast to clusters of grapes. I said, I will go up to the palm tree. I will take hold of the boughs thereof. If you're a palm tree, he said, I'm grabbing on. Now also your breast shall be as clusters of the vine, and the smell of your nose like apples, and the roof of your mouth. He was under her tongue while ago, now he's in the roof of her mouth. <clears throat> like the best wine for my beloved that goes down sweetly, causing the lips of those that are asleep to speak. I am my beloved's, and his desire is toward me. There's going to come a time when God, Christ is going to bless us to the point that we'll be able to say, his love is toward me. I can feel his love. I know he's there. He answers my prayers, my requests, my desires. He's had a deaf ear to us and his face turned. But that's going to change. Is, is repentance worth it? Is waking up worth it? Is showering spiritually and putting on a, the clothes of righteousness and donning the shoes of being willing to go where he wants to walk, worth it? I can hardly wait till we get ourselves to the point. And his gift is righteousness. It's not just us. He's working through us. But we have to do our part. And as we begin to truly repent and turn it around and, and become fully awake, he just can't help but respond to us. He loves us that closely, that lovingly, that intimately. We need to understand this. I am my beloved's, and his desire is toward me. Verse 11, Come, my beloved, let us go forth into the field. Let us lodge in the villages. Let us get up early to the vineyards. Let us see if the vine flourish, if we're producing some fruits here, whether the tender grape appear and the pomegranates bud forth. There will I give you my loves. He tells us in many places to come out of the midst of Babylon. He tells us to come to the fields and the villages. I want to tie that together with Micah 4. Hey, I didn't forget it. Um, couldn't because the context calls for it. If it's something could be forgotten, I'd do it. But I, I couldn't this one. Verse 7 of chapter 4 I want. And I will make her that halted... Here, here you have that which was lame, couldn't walk very well. I will make her that halted a remnant. He calls his church that he calls out and builds his latter temple a remnant. All through Haggai, many places through the prophecies, including right here. And her that was cast off, far, or cast far off, a strong people. And the Lord shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth even forever. Once he turns this around, as I said of the time of restitution in Acts, 13, I mean, Acts 3, 19 to 21 yesterday, 
Once he turns it around, it's going to be forever. Once he turns his face back to us this time, he will never turn it away again. No more divorce, no more ignoring. This time the bride will have made herself ready, and he's going to look her in the eye and say, Honey, come on, we're never going to part again. And when he returns, and she's changed there in First Thessalonians, it says we will ever be with him, ever be with him, never separated again. That's what he's talking about here. Once he turns to the daughter, virgin daughter of Zion, he will never turn from her again. This will carry through from the beginning and the building of the latter temple right on through the resurrection into the millennium and forever and ever. We will never be left alone again if we respond properly. And you, O tower of the flock, that is watchmen, they set a tower that the watchmen sat on in the vineyard to watch for foxes, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto you shall it come, not daughters, notice, to the daughter of Zion. Unto you shall it come even the first dominion. I will give you power first. The kingdom shall come to the daughter, not daughters here, of Jerusalem. So he, he called her his fairest one back there in Song of Songs and in Proverbs 31 of all the daughters. This is the one we want to become associated with and become a part of as she appears. Now why do you cry out aloud? Is there no king in you? Is your counselor perished? For the pangs have taken you as a woman in travail. When Herbert Armstrong died, we no longer had a secure leadership. In fact, we got a false leadership. Thank you for the bow and arrows. I'll slay the wolves that come in the flock. <laughs> I hope they're not very big and ferocious. <laughs> now he tells us, verse 10, here's instruction for his chosen, and I hope we can be a part of that chosen. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion. Be in pain. Bear down just like delivering a child. For now shall you go forth out of the city, there's the midst of Babylon, and you shall dwell in the field, and you shall go to Babylon. There shall you be delivered. So he tells us in many places, come out of the midst of Babylon, that where it is has its hold on us, and to go dwell in the field, even within Babylon. He doesn't tell us here to go to Jerusalem, Israel, or Palestine, to stay in Babylon, but to come out of the midst of it and dwell in the field. There you will be redeemed from the hand of your enemies. Persecution will come. Wherever God draws his people together, it is going to be perceived as a Jim Jones situation. Those nuts. Are you prepared for that? In other words, do you trust your groom that much? that when it's time for these things to happen, you're willing to go, you're willing to be, you're willing to follow these instructions and know that he will protect. I'll bet those people coming out of, his, out of uh, Egypt felt very vulnerable. They probably kept looking back. They'd been under the hand of Pharaoh for a long, long time, and every time they rebelled or didn't do what it was told them, they got whipped and beat 
and told to make more bricks. And then they got beat some more and told you'll make bricks without straw and you'll produce just as many as you ever did. And I'll bet by the time they came out of there, even though they had seen the Egyptian empire destroyed, they still had this little fear in the back of their minds that, you know, after 430 years of slavery, you've got a mentality, a slave mentality. And freedom is a scary thing. I have seen people come out of a prison who had been there for a while, and they were so scared of society around them that they did something immediately to cause them to have to be put back there. I'm thinking of one particular instance where a guy got out, and of course he was on probation. He wasn't to touch alcohol. He wasn't to go near his former family. And the very day he got out, he went to that place and sat down there and drank a beer and went right back to prison the same day he got out. Kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy type of thing. I think the insecurity of being out, he simply was not able to handle. And he was a member of God's church. I guess. Are we ready for this? Notice what he says. You go out of the midst of Babylon, you get out of the cities, you dwell in the field. I looked up field, and it means open spaces, not necessarily a plowed uh, cornfield. Now also many nations are gathered against you that say, let her be defiled and let our eye look disdainfully, is the implication, upon Zion. But they know not the thoughts of the Lord. We are supposed to by then, aren't we? We're to be able to read his mind, as we've seen. Neither understand they his counsel, for he shall gather them as the sheaves into the floor. They don't know what's coming on them. And he tells her then, Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves brass, and you shall beat in pieces many people, and I will consecrate their gain to the eternal, and their substance to the Lord of the whole earth. Once this thing starts, he is going to put his church out there before the public on an international scene, and she is going to thresh. The two witnesses are going to have fire come out of their mouth and burn up anybody who stands in their way, who try to kill them or harm them. They will pronounce plagues of blood, plagues of uh, all kinds, I suppose, as much as they wish or want or will, it says in Revelation 11. This is not going to be done in a corner, brethren. God is going to cause his church to rise up and thresh. And the world will know that God is God. We can be part and parcel with that. We can be part of that. So let's go back now to Song of Songs 7, and I know where I am this time. Verse 11, she says, I am my beloved. His desire is toward me. She's come to recognize that her relationship with him is secure, that it is strong, that his, his desire is toward her, and he shows her great favor. And he says to her, Come, my beloved, let us go forth into the field the open spaces. 
and let us lodge in the villages. Let us get up early to the vineyards. Let's go ahead of time if possible. Let's see what fruits are being produced. And there I will give you my loves. The mandrakes give a smell, and at our gates are all manner of pleasant fruits, new and old, which I have laid up for you, O my beloved, he says. The mandrakes were a narcotic plant esteemed by the ancients as a love medicine. He's, he's going to heal us and wave some mandrakes under our nose as an aphrodisiac, and we're just going to fall head over heels with our bridegroom. And he has laid up all kinds of wonderful things for us. I say us. I'm not trying to be exclusivist here and, and exclude anyone else or say we are that particular daughter that is chosen. All I'm saying is we need to understand this. And if we aren't that, we need to find her. We need to find the leadership that God is going to give. And if we are in line with these scriptures, we'll recognize, we'll see, we'll know, we'll find. All right, six minutes. You know what I appreciate about you guys? This is something that I've not seen for years and years, except what we've experienced in, last, in Africa the last couple of years, three years. You're wanting more services. You're wanting more Bible studies. You're wanting more time to talk about the things of God. I, people are asking me all that, can we have another Bible study? Can we do You haven't seen that for the last 10, 15, 20, 30 years in the churches of God. I'm beginning to think you people mean business. <laughs> wow. All right, he's, he's laid a lot up in store for us. If we'll just produce what we need to produce in devotion to him so that he opens these treasures to us. There's an awful lot of hope here and a lot of blessing and promise that we can respond to in faith and trust. Oh, that you were as my brother that sucked the breasts of my mother. When I should find you without, I would kiss you. Yes, I should not be despised. I would lead you and bring you into my mother's house. Who would instruct me? There's the church again in imagery. as part of the bride. I would cause you to drink of spiced wine of the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand should be under my head and his right hand should embrace me. Again, an intimate picture of them lying in bed and his left hand is under her, hugging her, and his right hand is free to roam. That is an intimate picture. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you stir not up nor awake my love until he please. This is the third time we've run across that. Who is this that comes up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? Who, who is this girl leaning on her beloved Christ? How can you identify this girl? Who is she? I raise you up under the apple tree. There your mother brought you forth. She's part of the mother church. And I'm not talking about the Catholics here. I'm talking about that which God raised up under Herbert Armstrong. There she brought you forth that bore you. Set me as a seal upon your heart. Aren't the 144,000, the bride, going to be sealed? And it's not just a mechanical thing. Set me as a seal on your heart, 
Let me enter your heart as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is cruel as the grave. The coals thereof are coals of fire, which has a most vehement flame. This is coming to a climax of this book and a climax of this relationship. Many waters cannot quench love. doesn't matter if the phone rings or the doorbell. Neither can the floods drown it. If a man would give all the substance of his house for love, it would be utterly condemned. You can't buy this kind of love. You can't create this kind of love out of nothing. It has to grow from the heart. We have a little sister. And she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister in the day when she shall be spoken for? If she be a wall, we will build upon her a palace of silver. And if she be a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. In other words... Christ and his bride have such a close relationship, such a wonderful, loving relationship that is not impinged upon from anywhere else. It is the ultimate example of what God wanted out of marriage, a deep mystery Paul spoke of, the way marriage ought to be. So then she says, I have married him. Now I look around and I wish that everyone else could be like this. And we have a little sister that isn't grown up yet. And maybe that little sister is in the millennium. Maybe that little sister is in the great white throne judgment. And we want to ha her to have what we have had at that point. That which we are growing toward and building up to. So, you see, it's not a selfish thing. When she was at the very beginning of this, she was kind of selfish. Do I look okay? I'm the one... Uh, I'll grab hold of you, I'll hold on to you, and her, her view was perhaps more inward than it should have been. But now that love has matured, so it is an outgoing concern. I have found the man. I have found Jesus Christ. I have married him. Now I'm looking out at those around saying, what do they have? Do they have the character? Will they build the right kind of relationship with God? If they don't, we'll board them up. If they do, it'll be beautiful. And then she looks at herself and says, I am a wall, and my breasts like towers. See, he's been telling her this. You can be beautiful, sweetie. And finally we grow up and say, I have breasts like towers. Wow. No longer am I a little sister here. I am mature. I am grown up. Look at me, world. She's got her clothes on of righteousness. I mean, this is imagery now. Then was I in his eyes as one that found favor, peace, security, completion, maturity, repose, closeness. Then she looks around at what Solomon had. And there's another reason I'm not sure that Solomon is a picture of Christ back there in what was it, chapter 3 or wherever it was. That one I'm thinking about. I don't know. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman. He let out the vineyard to keepers. Everyone for the fruit thereof was to bring a thousand pieces of silver. In other words, he ran a red light district, basically. He had all these wives and concubines, and he just couldn't make the rounds. So he said, hey, here's a money-making prospect and cheapened the daughters of Jerusalem. Rented them out for a thousand pieces of silver. 
My vineyard which is mine is before me. You, O Solomon, must have a thousand. And those that keep the fruit thereof, two hundred. He had to have two hundred eunuchs to ride herd on this whole bunch of women. That isn't what Christ wants. He wants one favored bride that he can live in love and peace with and uh, not have her cheat on him like she did in the Old Testament. And he finally had to divorce her for her adulteries and harlotries. He doesn't want us like that. He wants us to be true and faithful now and forevermore. So she makes this comparison. You that dwell in the gardens, the companions hearken to your voice. Cause me to hear it. Listen. Listen to what he has to say to us here about what we can be, what we can be a part of, how exciting it is. And he uses this imagery of the most exciting thing that can happen between two human beings if they have the right attitudes and are doing it right and are being faithful one to another. Make haste, my beloved, and be you like to a deer or to a young heart upon the mountains of spices. Please come to me quickly across the hills the way a deer would run up and down a mountain. And I have my spice bed all prepared for you, and come on and dive in, honey. That's the way she feels toward him. Please come with haste. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. 